I think a lot of people are starting to put the pieces together. Welcome, Welcome. from Alpha from to Alpha. Omega. I'd like to make the outrageous claim that has a little bit of truth. All of this thing that's happening now with the computer, the digitalization of our society, of, uh, of information, you could say in a way is the result of a philosophical question that was raised by uh, David Hilbert at the beginning of the century. It's not a complete lie to say that Turing invented the computer in order to shed light on a philosophical question about the foundations of mathematics that was asked by Hilbert. So it's as if the whole economy today is being run to keep the bank solvent, not to produce more goods and services, not to raise living standards, but all for the uh, aim of uh, increasing bank profits. Everyone has to line up and sing hosannas to their leaders. That's the job of intellectuals. Round up the chorus so they all sing praises to your leaders while they march in the parade and tell you how magnificent we are. And that's the historic task of intellectuals. Hello, and welcome to the eighth episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Wednesday, the 27th of June 2012, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today we will be speaking to Glaucus, the masked man behind the Planning Down blog, and city planner who is seeking to change how we live in and design the towns and cities of the future. Our chat will cover such diverse topics as cities as metabolic organisms, the Industrial Revolution, Jevons Paradox, and Obama's National Defense Authorization Act and indefinite detention without trial. But first, the boring stuff. You can subscribe to the show on the podcast website, or, if you like, over on iTunes. This week's show is sponsored by my good friend Colm F., who has become the second monthly subscriber to the show. Feeling Duncan, Colm. If you would like to become the third monthly subscriber, or just make a once-off donation to help keep the show afloat, you can click the donate buttons on the podcast website. Now to the interview. During the day, Glaucus works somewhere in America as an urban planner, but during the nighttime, he is transformed into the blogger behind the blog, Planning Down planning American cities for an energy-constrained and environmentally challenged future. Can you explain to the audience who is not aware what the current orthodoxy in planning is? Yeah, so basically, for the uninitiated, urban planning is basically land use regulation. It answers questions about what you can and can't do with your property. And the nuts and bolts of it aren't very interesting, but basically the way it works in the United States uh, specifically, and I'm sure in the the Western world more generally, is there's a a comprehensive plan and sort of a general agreement that's established. Usually there's a lot of outreach to the public as well that's involved in trying to chart out the future of how you want your local municipality to develop. And from that flow uh, zoning regulations. So those are the actual laws on the ground about 
you know, what you can do with your property, the density, all of those things, the uses, they all play into the zoning regulations. So you could, in theory, look at a, a big book of bylaws and see exactly what you can do on your property and how big the building and outbuildings can be. And, you know, in terms of what aspects planning relates to, it, it really touches on a lot of different things, including environmental impacts, transportation, the form and density of buildings, and, and the uses that occur on site. It's very much a, a social science. There's a lot of input, as you can imagine, from the political side of things, as well as from the community side of things. And just from going through, you know, I've been a planner for about eight years now, and one of the things that I began to recognize in some of the experiences that I had was that a lot of the orthodoxy, as you say, in planning doesn't really jibe with some of the things that I've read in terms of ecological principles, laws of thermodynamics. The more that I started to read about some of these disparate subjects, the more that I recognized that planning itself, there's a lot within the orthodoxy that does conform with physical reality and some of the limits that are introduced when you start looking at the city or as part of an ecological system. But there's, there's many things that don't, and it's very difficult sometimes to parse those out and to explain them. And hence, I started this project of trying to delve into those issues a little further and really try and articulate why I feel the way that I do and try and explain that to folks. Just from working on some of those sustainability projects, I, I recognize some deep incongruities between the role of cities embedded within ecological systems and the way that planning today proposes to go forward into a much more difficult, energy-poor future. One of the criticisms you have is of the triple bottom line view of planning. Can you tell us about that? I think many people who are involved in sustainability and have an interest in it are familiar with the three E's or the triple bottom line. So it's basically social equity, the environment, and the economy. The way that it's currently configured, the idea is that for you to realize sustainability, all three of those indicators, they're interlocking circles, sort of like a Venn diagram. And in the center, that's where you find sustainability. So without all three, you can't have sustainability. And I think that's a little bit of a misleading way of looking at sustainability. I think that comes at it a little bit from an anthropomorphic way of looking at things. I think at the end of the day, what, what's important is to look at sustainability from an ecological perspective. And really, the ability to carry on an economy and the ability to provide social equity is based in a healthy, functioning environment. And I think it's important to recognize that those two things, as important as they are, are based in the, or a healthy functioning uh, environment. And without that, it really doesn't matter what kind of economy or society you have. A common criticism of most economics is that they don't take into account thermodynamics and the laws of physics. Does planning fall into the same trap? Yeah, it does. Again, getting back to your earlier question about you know some of the faults that I find in the, the current planning orthodoxy, 
you know, I want to make clear, I think about 80% of it is good in terms of on-the-ground regulations. And I think a lot of planners, you know, have the right idea about the way that things should go forward. But it's stuck in what I like to call the big world paradigm still. And this is a paradigm that's mostly hidden from view and was established in over the past few hundred years, you know, during a time of, you know, the age of exuberance. William Catton wrote the book Overshoot, and I, I would really highly urge people who are interested in some of these subjects to read that book in particular, because it really paints in broad strokes, but gives a good sense about the history of why we're in the situation that we are today. Because he looks at the progression of civilization through an ecological lens. One of the things that he talks about is that when Columbus discovered the New World uh, in 1492, that really changed things in Europe, which at the time was really starting to, to fill up and had really sort of been in a state of paralysis during the Middle Ages when ways of life sort of froze in time. People lived in a, a way that was congruent with the regional limitations. And during the age of exuberance, there became a, a new way of looking at the world. And a lot of that led to believing that the world was big and that it was in service to humans, basically. So a very human-centric way of looking at the world. And out of this sprung a perspective that the resources and the energy of the world could be appropriated for human services, away from other biotic community members who would have otherwise used that. The name of that process is called takeover. Essentially, humans have been taking over and that energy and those resources from those other biotic community members in service of human projects, uh, including the, the building of cities. What's flowed from that is this big world paradigm. Planning, I think, developed at a time when that big world paradigm was still very much in full effect. There was really a focus during this time also in dependence upon technological ingenuity. For the most part, during that time, medieval Europe, cities were mostly still sustainable, mostly because they had to be. And that's a term that I like to call authentic cities. Basically, during the second industrial revolution, that's when we discovered and really started to apply fossil fuels. And this really marks a major change in the way that humans interact with the environment, or the way that humans build cities. This is something that Catton calls drawdown. And the idea behind drawdown is drawing down mostly non-renewable resources faster than they can be replenished. And this was, you know, again, it continued within the, the big world paradigm. So we started to create metastatic cities, what I call metastatic cities. Where does this term metastatic come from? Metastatic comes from the noun metastasis, which implies the injurious spread of something or the condition of transforming from something wholesome and good to something bad and corrupting. And I really like this term because I think that it really puts a pin on what was going on at this time in that, you know, these cities were being established and they were growing so quickly and they were spreading all over the world so quickly that they really... It's almost like a, almost like a cancerous sort of growth, where you know these these cities that are dependent upon massive stores of fossil fuel are springing up all over the place. 
at a rate that could not be sustained by the energy and resources that they depend upon for their maintenance and continuation. So this would be in England, the cities depending upon the coal mines and then oil. Exactly. And that's where, you know, during the second industrial revolution, that's when all these great inventions that had been accumulating over the past century or so, that's when we started to really feed them with an energy source that was vast and really refined and really dense. And so that was able to fuel a sort of growth and a sort of intensification of urbanization that had not been seen previously. So these metastatic cities, if we take the analogy of cancer, of a tumour, essentially they're feeding on the body and at some stage in a cancer, it basically consumes the body and kills it. Is this the process we're currently seeing ourselves in? You know, it's, it's really hard not to look at the situation that way. When you look at, again, the basis of expansion and survival of these metastatic cities, it's being fossil fuels, which are finite. It's difficult not to see how this plays out in a, in a very bad way. And so one of my focuses is looking at the transition from fossil fuels to renewable resources. And this is something that I really talk about. It's this reliance on the idea that efficiency measures, the scaling up of renewable sources of energy, uh, are going to bail our metastatic cities out of their current predicament. And I just don't, based on everything that I've read and seen and heard, I just don't see how that's going to be possible. What I'd like to do is start looking at ways that we can shrink down cities' resource needs to a point where they can sort of cushion the blow for when fossil fuels and other resources that metastatic cities need become more scarce. And that process will probably take many decades to occur. But at this point right now, I don't see planning policies, and I call them insular planning policies, because I feel like they feel like our cities are somehow insulated from the larger functions of the earth itself and somehow insulated from the laws of thermodynamics and insulated from ecological principles. I'm really skeptical about the reality of that. And so I want to look at ways of planning which take those laws of thermodynamics, those ecological principles into consideration in formulating and articulating new planning policies which really can provide for futures in these places. You know, it's not going to look like it does now. You know, a lot of the major cities in the Western world are going to be scaling down pretty dramatically over this century. And, you know, it's in my interest and it's, you know, in the interest of, of our children to formulate policies which allow that process to unfold as easily as possible without a lot of difficulties.
plastic when your mind begins to slip. Come on now, hold that joint right on this crazy trip. The current idea in planning is that density and, and cities are, are really the way to go as opposed to suburbs. This kind of goes against your ideas that are based more in the scientific reality of, of a city. One of the fundamentals besides this, this faith, really a blind faith in renewable energy and, and efficiency, is this idea that density is, a, is an unquestionably good thing. And when you really dig down into ecology, when you, when you dig down into the laws of thermodynamics and how dynamic dissipative systems work, and if you look at the evidence, it's just not there. It's just not the case. Can you describe what a dynamic dissipative system is? Anyone who's interested in dynamic systems really owes it to themselves to read Howard Odom. The man is an absolute genius, and specifically for planners, he talks about the city itself and how it's a system within, you know, nest within other larger ecological systems. But basically, the idea is that the world is permeated with these dynamic dissipative systems. And there's a couple of major inputs that basically all systems function by. So the first is flow of energy. And without a flow of energy, no dynamism is possible. Within that flow of energy, you've got a multiplicity of entities. And that can be anything from, you know, it depends on the scale that you're looking at for dynamic dissipative systems because they are all nested within each other all the way down to you know molecules all the way up to a solar system even though those are highly disparate looking entities from our sort of anthropocentric perspective you can boil those systems down and they all share certain properties so again a flow of energy multiplicity of entities so that can be matter that can be individual units like people and they're they're different and complementary meaning you know in the case of the city of people you have buildings parks so all of those things come together and then there's also a semi-permeable boundary so in the city you can look at that as proximity proximity power is really one of the catalysts which facilitates meaningful interactions between those those multiplicities of entities so how close things are Exactly. And the closer things are, the more densely packed they are, the greater differentiation of those complementary parts you get. One way of looking at it is the more dense, the more individuated and specific and specialized each of the entities are. So on, on a street in a suburb of a city, you have your shop and you have your petrol station and you have all different functions in that one area. That's right. And it's really density that makes that possible. So if you're in if you go to the country, you have all farmers, for example. Yeah, that's the reason there's no valets, you know, at roadside diners. It's because the specialization that's required just isn't there in existence in the country. But that but it is in the city because of some of the factors which govern 
how those systems operate under specific densities. And so this boundary we think of in the case of, say, like a cell in a human body, we have the cell wall. And if we think maybe like a city, we have maybe, you know, the start of the green belt. Yeah. And that's the thing. It used to be during pre-fossil fuel times, that semi-permeable boundary for cities was the region itself. So it was totally impractical to ship in resources in large quantities from abroad just because there wasn't the energy that was possible to do that. So cities were fixed based on the energy and resources available uh, within the region. But with the introduction of fossil fuels, we see that that semi-permeable boundary just blown to shreds. And we see now, you know, we live in a fully integrated, globalized society where, you know, you might have grapes picked in Argentina and squeezed in Spain and bottled in Tokyo and then shipped in to, you know, on your grocer's shelf in uh, Omaha, Nebraska or something. So you have this highly complexified system that has really only occurred and is only really possible under a fossil fuel regime, which offers cheap and plentiful energy. If we look at modern cities today, then we see that instead of their boundary, the cell of the city, for example, being quite local to the region, with fossil fuels, it's essentially expanding to the entire world. Nearly every city has basically become drawing down from the entire world at the one time. Exactly. And this is the confusing, this is one of the aspects that I think a lot of people miss when they look at cities and their density and get it confused with sustainability. Major cities like New York City, for instance, people like to say, oh, well, you know, the people in New York City, that's the most sustainable place to live. Because if you look at the ecological footprints of each person, the efficiencies in place there make it so that each person is less responsible for ecological degradation per capita than someone who lives in the suburbs. And if you look at it, that's true on a per capita basis. But when you look at the totality of New York City's energy use versus you know people who live in the country or in poor areas, for instance, you see that New York City and, and other very large cities in the Western world are the absolute capitals of energy use and resource needs. It's very easy to see why. I mean, these places, they have their fingers in every corner of the world. This is something I talked about in a blog post, but I think it it needs to be described in a little bit of detail here to get a, a better sense of what I'm talking about. It's called the positive feedback loop of urbanization. And I haven't seen this really articulated anywhere, but all of the evidence that I could find suggests that the denser a population is, the greater economies of scale that are possible there, which leads to increased production, greater affluence, and higher rates of consumption, which itself leads to greater ecological impact and higher urban metabolism and inducement to densify further in a sort of perpetuating feedback loop. These places, they have their fingers in the resources everywhere on Earth because the prices that they command in those places you have just about every finished good and every service available on Earth available in some of those very large metastatic cities. And that's why they don't exist elsewhere, is because there are some dynamics at play there which determine how that city 
operates and the services that it, it has available. And it's very easy to see just if you look at cities as dynamic systems nested within a, a larger ecological system. So, for example, I moved to a city and because I'm living in a dense area, my transport costs less. And so because I end up maybe getting a job that pays more, I've got more surplus money in my in my pocket. And with that money, I can buy and do more stuff and consume more things, which then causes the economy to do well and to attract more people and so on and so forth. Exactly. And what you end up with is a throughput of energy that's higher than it would have been otherwise. And, you know, this is something, again, that within the planning establishments that a lot of people just don't get. If you if you look at the uh, research of Jeffrey West, it turns out that as cities double in size, that each person does 15% more of everything. And essentially what's going on here, the dynamic involved is that people are leveraging the efficiencies of the infrastructure into consumption. And from a planning perspective, that's a little bit difficult to untangle because planners, by their very nature, you know, when planning was established in the beginning of the 20th century, land use laws, zoning laws in particular, were established to protect urban residents from the worst impacts of the industrial city. And those laws speak only to the land uses. And so now we're looking at solving these large environmental problems with a series of outdated regulations, which are only restricted really to the way that land uses work. Now, by promoting density, we're doing very good things in reducing that the infrastructural energy costs. Okay, so the efficiency of putting people together works very well in reducing the, the infrastructural energy costs. However, what we see is, is that they're just showing up in a different form that we're not really measuring in the consumption side of things. So I guess you could live in New York and pat yourself on the back for not driving and using the subway and biking and doing all of those really good things. Uh, and I mean that. They're really good things. But on the other end of it, because you don't have to buy a car anymore, that frees up money for you to go on vacations, for you to buy more varied and expensive goods from abroad. And all that stuff relies on a deep network of fossil fuels that would not be available otherwise. And so you really see that these very large cities are deeply embedded. And that embeddedness costs a lot of energy to maintain. It's just that it's, it's disparate and it's very difficult to measure and to quantify. And again, Land use policies are restricted just at looking at the infrastructure efficiencies, and they don't look at the back end, the consumption that goes on and is made possible by those increased densities. So it's an insidious issue and problem. And again, as you can tell, it's difficult for me to, to articulate because it's coming at the problem from an oblique angle that I don't think a lot of planners are educated to look at first. But it's something that when you look at the city as a dynamic system, becomes very evident very quickly. And it leads to another series of conclusions about how to go forward in remedying our city's dependence on fossil fuels and what the sustainable city 
will end up looking like. You know, it's an enormous issue that really is at the center of what I'm trying to do. The way a city grows and it replaces its efficiency with greater consumption speaks to a similar problem in the realm of technologies, Jevons Paradox, where new efficiencies do not lead to less consumption. This is a really insidious part of the problem. Most people who are very familiar with sustainability issues and, and advocate for them, you know, the heart is in the right place. But I don't think the solutions necessarily align with physical reality. And here we're talking about, again, efficiency and renewable energy. And the problem in our society right now is that all of those efficiencies that are gained when you put people closer together, when you install solar panels, when you buy a, a more energy efficient dryer, all of those things, when you put them together, we're not eliminating those from consumption. What we're doing is reinvesting those efficiency gains back into the system through a process called the rebound effect. And Jevons paradox is sort of an extreme example of the rebound effect. But the rebound effect basically says that whenever you realize an efficiency, those efficiency gains, at least a portion of them, are reinvested back into the system so that you're not writing down all of the energy that you're saving. And occasionally, what's put back in is, is to an actual higher degree than what was initially saved. And that's a revenge effect called Jevons Paradox. So in urban terms, this is very easy to see. Basically, what you'd expect to see and what you would hope to see, and I think what a lot of people who are sustainability advocates would like to see, is total, raw total energy use go down over time. Because really, that's the only way that we're going to become more sustainable until sustainability is enforced upon us by ecological reality. But assuming that we can try and reach sustainability on our own terms, a lot of people believe that efficiency and renewable energy is going to get us there. But in our society, unfortunately, we reinvest those into economic growth. And what you see is total energy use going up over time and not going down. All as per capita energy use is stagnant or falling, which is, again, it's, it's really a, a difficult problem, but you can have the situation, and in fact, we do have the situation where each individual person becomes more and more efficient, but at the same time, total energy use across the entire system continues to rise. So that's something that, through the rebound effect, that efficiency in renewable energy just is not solving for. And as that goes on over time, What's actually occurring from a systems perspective is that a lot of the, the system complexity is just becoming, by expanding that system, it's just becoming more frail over time. And that's what we're seeing as well. What I propose is turning that around and actually retiring those efficiency gains in a process called curtailment. And what curtailment would necessitate is any time that you would buy a new dryer that's more efficient or uh, install solar panels or move to the city that 
those efficiency gains are retired. In other words, they're not reinvested back into the system, into more economic growth, into bigger and better vacations. But that money that's saved, that energy that's saved, is retired offline so that we can start to see our total energy requirements for society start to level off and then start to fall. And how would you manage to put this money aside? And you know what, Tom? That's a very good question. That's a very difficult question to answer. I think the answer has something to do with our arrangements of living. And creating an arrangement of living that's based in the historical model that's made clear to us by the, the authentic city over time, before fossil fuels reign supreme and really fuel this metastatic way of life. If we can get back to that and ease back into it, keeping all of the good, appropriate technologies, uh, I think that it could make for a great, not standard of living, but quality of life. And those are not interchangeable terms. Uh, and I really like to make a strict differentiation between those, where standard of living, you know, we're measuring well-being on GDP and you know, how much people are making and consuming per year and how many goods they can buy and services they can buy. You know, I want to try, and I think the answer has something to do with getting away from that and actually looking at things that make people happy. And here I'm talking about quality of life inputs, you know, the quality of your relationship with your family and with your friends, the feeling that you get from a good day's work of something that's actually tangible and, you know, helps society living in a community that is much more small-scale and networked and tied more tightly to its region and less globalized, so it has more of an identity. And these are very, you know, admittedly, these are very nebulous propositions, but I got a feeling that that's the direction that things need to go in. And that's something that I'm really trying hard to articulate when, again, you look at cities as systems that are nested within larger ecological systems. I really don't see any other way to accomplish sustainability in a workable way that doesn't lead in that direction. One of the problems I have with with very good solutions like you put forward and I have ideas for myself is that they rarely deal with the power structure of society and that if we look at, say, to the capitalist system of production, it's based upon ever-expanding economic growth. And if we, if we try to actually change towards negative growth, degrowth, we end up having essentially some kind of a power struggle. And the only way that you get to degrowth is either through some kind of collapse and it happens naturally and nature does its course, or some kind of revolutionary action. Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of your listeners and a lot of the people who follow what other thinkers like James Howard Kunstler, Dmitry Orlov, John Michael Greer, I think all of those folks are you know, trying to elucidate what risks there are in going forward under the current regime that we have and are exploring different ways to address that going forward. There are others, the, the Eco-City Movement through Richard Register. I think these really speak very well to some of the ways forward out of this. And I really don't see a way that this is going to come as a as sort of a top-down approach. 
what my interest is, is talk, talking to young planners and really getting instilled in them to really ask larger questions about, in terms of planning policy, looking at things from an ecological perspective and really valuing the physical science aspect of planning in conjunction with the social aspects of planning. And I think that those sort of movements are going to have to come from a community standpoint. Looking at it, it's, it's difficult for me to see how, how going forward we're going to be able to deal with the sort of impacts that we're going to have to deal with in our cities unless it comes from a, a community perspective. And, you know, there's a lot of education involved in that. And it's something that society is going to have to get its head around because nature doesn't really care about your intentions of how sustainable you'd like to be. She doesn't care about how efficient you are in per capita terms. What she's interested in is raw totals. And she's interested in saying that you can live any way that you want as long as you live within what is possible on a long-term basis. That's going to be communities, communities of people who do that work on their own in trying to figure out how to live much more simply in the face of some of the challenges that are, that are coming down the pike, like economic collapse, gradual or sudden, as well as environmental collapse. And so it's important for communities and for planners to be ready for that process, which is already underway. We're all set. And they're off. early. It's Astrology's White Cap who shows well to the fore. At this stage, Bonfire is in sixth place just ahead of main sequence. Camelot written with restraint only has minimized risk behind as Astrology climbs the hill at a reasonable gallop, leading by a length or so. From in second, Ruggy Cross, Cavaliero closer to the rail, disputing third place with Thoughtworthy in the white and green. Main sequence in the cross belts. Camelot's purple cap only has one behind, and that one is minimized risk. So having got to the front, Astrology is now just setting an even gallop. Thoughtworthy is in second place on the outside of Rugged Cross. Camelot still just with one behind, and that is minimized risk at this stage. They're climbing towards the highest point of the course. Astrology out in front, leads by two lengths from Thoughtworthy in second place. In third is Rugged Cross, just ahead of Bonfire, who's made another place, picking off Cavaliero. No move yet from Camelot, who's won from the back with minimized risk. So Astrology it is, who leads the descent so what is the sufficiency principle the sufficiency principle is a concept that was described in by thomas princeton the idea is that it's founded on the common sense idea that as one does more and more of an activity, there can be enough and there can be too much. One of the examples that makes sense to everybody is, you know, there are diminishing returns in eating cheesecake. Eat just a little bit, that's great. And maybe a full slice is the best. But anything more than that, each forkful that you eat past that 
it's going to have diminishing returns associated with it. And it's going to also have negative impacts as well. You know, short-term impacts such as maybe indigestion and long-term impacts such as obesity. Exactly. And so the idea is that, you know, when you understand some of the moving parts and how all that works, that there really does appear to be a range which is ideal and sufficient. I think that this is a, a really important principle to consider when, when you talk about planning, when you talk about cities. You know, we had talked earlier about density. Now, I, I want to make it clear that I, I think density is a good thing to a point. I think that proposals to make the city you know, infinitely dense or somehow pack all of humanity into one or two or three very large cities and the, the idea that the rest of the planet would be fine, you know, I think that's a very dangerous and idea that's not really compatible with reality. I think what needs to happen is we need to look at minimum amounts of density which can earn a city a way of life that still provides an, an atmosphere for cultural development and you know, healthful social interactions, healthful economic interactions. But if the city is too big, then it has all of these other externalities which really degrade the larger environment. But there's a sweet spot in there, and density is a part of that. What I want to do is try and establish a planning policies revolving around this idea. So instead of the sort of insular way of looking at things and sort of pretending that the city exists in a vacuum that isn't subject to ecological principles, I want to flip that around and look at what kind of cities that we can construct that operate within that ecological principle that are sufficient to human needs. Basically, it's an interdisciplinary approach to planning which integrates the physical science into what is traditionally operated as a social and political science. It's going to promote curtailment and resilience strategies as the primary means to deal with energy and ecological challenges, rather than efficiency and renewable energy. I love renewable energy. I think that there's no question that that will be the way that our children and our children's children primarily power their way of life. However, I think what's lost on a lot of people is the scale at which that renewable energy is going to be gathered. I think that it's going to be a much more small-scaled, more nuanced approach to it. I don't see massive wind farms and massive solar arrays deployed all over the world in order to maintain this metastatic way of life. I think that's a deeply wrong way of imagining the future, of imagining the role of renewable energy. Speaking to the political element you described as planning as a part of a social science, what are your expectations with regard to the political impact of any of these proposals that you put forward? There's a difficult problem there, and it's one that hasn't gone unnoticed by a number of other folks who are well-read in energy depletion and climate change impacts. And that's that Political leaders are largely elected because they tell the people what they want to hear. And I think a lot of people don't want to hear that the future is going to be less wealthy than in the past, particularly when so many people are hurting right now economically. 
when the economy is struggling, people really don't care all that much about the environment in terms of interest level. Sort of diminishes because I think for a lot of people, the environment is something looked at as an extra on top of what they seem to be closest to their well-being. You know, obviously having a job and having a, a healthy, functioning, vigorously growing economy, they somehow see as being more closely aligned with their self-interest than a, a healthy, functioning environment. And that's a, that's a very deep problem that I think is rooted in that big world paradigm that I talked about before and certainly nested in, in the insular planning model that I'm, I'm trying to get past. But, you know, I don't see us electing leaders that will tell us the hard truths or lead the way somehow, propose that we live in, in simpler ways. I, I simply don't see that happening. I think that, like I said before, it needs to be a ground roots, a groundswell of people who understand the issues and understand the challenges and then force our leaders to conform to those ideas. Or at the very least, you know, just start living that way. Just start living in a more sustainable way. Really start to hack at your dependence on the system. Start to hack away at you know, how much you need to buy and reducing that, and then you'll inherently become much more resilient to the effects that are coming, and you'll also serve as a resource for people who are left in the lurch later on, you know? And I think there's really some uh, societal value in doing that, and looking at things from that perspective, too, because, again, it's going to come down to communities. That is the scale at which people, humans, are going to make it through these uh, ecological and economic changes that are coming down our way. But it's not going to be led by politicians who tell us the hard truths, particularly without a knowledgeable population that understands where their best interests really lie. And that's in a healthy functioning environment and not necessarily primarily a healthy functioning economy. But there is another aspect to this that I'd like to sort of follow up on. And this is also something that I see in planning circles that I think really needs to be understood by planners when they talk about sustainability is I think there's a deep skepticism, at least in the American population, about sustainability and that there's a suspicion that somehow politicians or big businesses, again, it's getting increasingly difficult to tell the difference between those two interests, but basically between the powers that be and the individual people that if somehow we all start to live more sustainably, there's no protections in place to restrict the powers that be and the people with the money and access to resources to use them even more. Again, it comes back to the curtailment question that I talked about before. We need to make sure that those efficiency gains, energy and resources that are conserved by living more sustainably are not used by a few people who somehow absolve themselves from those regulations. We need to make sure that energy and those resources that are conserved are actually retired out of the system in order to bring our resource consumption and energy use down. You know, we've been talking mostly about cities in the Western world, but the reality is that all of the action, nearly all of the action, uh, over the rest of this century, in terms of urbanization, is going to be happening in Asia and in Africa. And that's where you have 
something like 90% of expected urban growth over the next 40 years, I believe. Right now, about half of all of humanity lives in cities, and I've read figures that they expect 75% of all of humanity to live in cities by 2050, and a million people a week are moving to cities. And again, all of this action is occurring in the developing world. And I think from a Western perspective, you know, we look at the ways of life that we have established now. And when we talk about sustainability, I, I don't think we have a clear understanding about the implications of the sort of urbanization that's occurring elsewhere and its impacts on us living in the Western world. But I think that going forward, that is going to be a major factor of consideration that we need to make here in the Western world. It's difficult for me to say, to sit here as a planner in America, and to tell people in Dubai or anywhere else how to plan their cities. You know, it's, it's out of my range of understanding. All I can do is look at the larger reality that's out there and apply it to specific situations that I, I can speak intelligibly on. I think it's, it's up to each planners in their own respective areas, whether it's in England or in Canada or the United States, and understand those larger dynamics and, and really try and look at, from a systems perspective, how that's going to impact your local city and what kind of resilience you are planning to implement to offset some of the risks that are inherent on, you know, a, a world that is increasingly urbanized and in ways that are very, very dependent upon fossil fuels. And looking at that and trying to imagine a way of life going forward that will be successful under those circumstances. And finally, Glaucus, are you forced to use your pseudonym for fear that other planners will try and have you indefinitely imprisoned without trial under Obama's National Defense Authorization Act? <laughs> you know, it's not a situation where I, where I fear retribution from the larger planning establishment or anything like that. And in fact, I think planners are some of the more open-minded folks uh, out there in terms of professions. Uh, but I feel like using my real name would cause a distraction at best and a conflict of interest at worst based on my employer and some of the work that I'm involved with. And more than anything else, I want people to focus on the message and not the messenger necessarily, at least at this point. Well, Glaucus, thanks very much for the interview today. Thank you very much, Tom. It was great to be on. Our discussion today with Glaucus about technology and the Jevons paradox really gets to the heart of one of the main problems the world faces today, overconsumption and the monetary system. As Karl Marx pointed out, in a capitalist system, the object of the capitalist is not to produce, but to gain a monetary surplus, i.e. to be left with a profit after all the wages and expenses are paid. And I suppose all of us operate in this same fashion when it comes to efficiencies. When we buy new efficient double glazed windows for our house to save money on our energy bills, we don't just throw away the savings, we usually spend them on something else. Much like the capitalist producer, we also seek a monetary surplus. And this monetary surplus is inextricably linked to ever-increasing consumption. It would seem any economic system based on money has this same fatal flaw. 
I hope to get somebody on the show in the future to talk about non-monetary economic systems and their implications. What a cry and shame, a cry and shame, what we became. I would like to thank Glaucus for a very stimulating interview, and I recommend people to check out his blog, Planning Down, to find out more about these important issues. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, Shine On You Crazy Scumbag, by Clive Star, Way Out, by Heavy Thrash, the 2012 English Derby, accompanied by Rossini's William Tell Overture, and you are now listening to the brilliant Deer Tick singing Ashamed. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. What a cry.